This is in fact my fifth Gaza war. So, you know, I've seen firsthand in Gaza and um, what these attacks are like and what both UNRWA, United Nations staff and what the population of Gaza goes through. The Hamas rockets and the Hamas attacks and the attacks by other groups are very much a symptom and not a cause. Israel is the spoiled child of the international community, partly because America, this guardian parent, has always protected Israel. You know, when you get Israeli cabinet ministers saying Gaza needs to be put on a diet, we need to mow the lawn every few years. When you've got tweets which presume are authentic from Itamar Ben Gavir saying the only thing I'm going to allow into Gaza is tons of explosives every day and no humanitarian aid. I mean, how much more dehumanizing can you get? My guest today is Chris Gunners, who is a seasoned journalist and diplomat with decades of experience reporting on and working in the Middle East. Chris began his career at the BBC in 1982, and for 23 years he served in numerous capacities, including reporter and foreign correspondent. In 2005, he transitioned to diplomacy, joining the United Nations Special Coordinator for, for the Middle East Peace Process, and later became the spokesman for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, also known as UNRWA. Post-UN, Chris founded the Myanmar Accountability Project in 2021, which brings criminal prosecutions against members of the Myanmar junta, and he is currently the director of this initiative. Chris joins me today for his reflections on the tragic escalation of violence in Israel and across Gaza and the West Bank. Chris, thank you very much for joining me on the Voices of War. It's a real pleasure, Mas. Thanks for having me. I know you're very busy, uh, especially today, given what's happening uh, with the strike on hospitals, so I really do appreciate your time. Um, just before we dive into the horrendous events, uh, of the past 11 or so days. Uh, just for context, uh, we're recording this on the 18th of October, uh, and it is uh, now just gone after 12.30 p.m., so just after midday uh, in Jerusalem, 10.30 uh, a.m., I think, uh, in London, where you are. Just before we uh, get into it, uh, I think it's useful for our audience to get a sense of your own background. Uh, so perhaps you can briefly summarize your career for us uh, and explain your involvement in the Israel-Palestine conflict over the years. Well, I joined the BBC as a graduate trainee in 1982, having read philosophy at Oxford, and I became a journalist. I worked as a studio manager, and then a producer, and then a reporter. Then I became the UN's BBC, the, B, the BBC's UN correspondent. Um, reported a lot on East Asia, which interested me a great deal. Um, and um, my partner, my circumstances changed. My partner died, and in 2006, I went off to be. Uh, the um, head of communications for the UN's political office, what you say, the special coordinator's office. Mm. I worked there for about a year, and then um, I moved over. UNRWA needed a spokesperson. UNRWA works in Syria, Jordan, Gaza, the West Bank, and Lebanon, and not just in Gaza mm. and the West Bank. So I was the head of public advocacy and strategic communications and the spokesman um, through, um, through a series of Gaza wars. This is, in fact, my fifth Gaza war. So, you know, I've seen firsthand in Gaza and um, what these attacks are like and what both UNRWA, United Nations staff and what the um, population of Gaza goes through. Mm. Well, I guess uh, that you are absolutely perfectly qualified uh, to uh, answer some of the uh, or the many of the questions that I have given what's happening. Uh, so, so perhaps we can start uh, with a, a little bit of a backstory. Uh, given what we know, what's happened uh, and everything that's unfolded, in your view, what are the underlying causes behind the ongoing conflict that we're seeing uh, occur today? 
What, what has brought us here? Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's the most important question because the Hamas rockets and the Hamas attacks and the attacks by other groups are very much a symptom and not a cause and condemnable and regrettable and mm. appalling and abhorrent as they all are. I think it's important as the rockets fly and as the missiles fly into Gaza to look at the underlying causes. And the underlying causes are threefold. First of all, the blockade of Gaza, which has been going on since 2007, which is a collective punishment. Half of Gaza is children, our children. They're too young even to have voted, to have expressed an opinion about Hamas. They are not responsible for the rockets. Um, and to be clear, Gaza has been brought to its knees. Um, it's in a state of abject destitution. There's over 46% unemployment. Today, because of the Israeli blockade, which has, of course, been turned into a pretty much absolute blockade with the denial of water, food, electricity, benzene, um, you name it, Israel is not allowing it in. So an already destitute territory has now become a really a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, so there's the blockade of Gaza, cause underlying cause number one. Secondly, the Israeli occupation, which began in 1967, and which has not just continued to this day, it's deepened and broadened. So one of the horrifying aspects of the new um, administration, the far-right yeah. um, settler administration in Israel, is the exponential settlement expansion that's taken place, and with it, the appalling settler violence, um, which the Israeli, the so-called Israeli defense forces, they are protecting to some degree um, the settlers. So the Israeli occupation underlying cause number two. And finally, underlying cause number three, the dispossession of the Palestinians that took place in 1948 um, with the so-called War of Independence, or as the Palestinians put it, the Nakma, their primordial catastrophe in which 750,000 people either fled or were forced out of their homes. That population has grown. So today there are millions and millions of refugees. Two-thirds of Gaza are refugees. And with every displacement, that sense of the Nakba, that original displacement, is reinforced. And, you know, to be clear about these underlying causes, until and unless we move away from this narrative of terrorism and Israel's right to defend itself, of course Israel has the right to defend itself, but until we actually start addressing the underlying causes, Israelis will continue to live in a state of terror and anxiety and insecurity and Palestinians will continue to be denied their political rights, they'll be denied dignity, they'll be denied the chance to participate in a thriving economy. And make no mistake about it, Gaza could be the Singapore of the Middle East. Palestinians are educated, they're um, computer literate, they speak good English. There's no doubt in my mind that Gaza could be a thriving economy if only Israel would open up, lift the blockade, and allow Gaza to live up to its destiny. Hmm. A couple of points that I just want to pick up on there, because uh, firstly, thank you for that summary. I think it's a very useful summary and a very good starting point. Uh, just focusing on the occupation, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere at the moment. Uh, I mean, the competing narratives, especially on, on something like X uh, or Twitter, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just incredible uh, what we're observing. But the one of the narratives is that, well, Israel hasn't occupied Gaza since 2005, right? So it's kind of throwing the ball back into the Palestinian court and saying, well, you're governing yourself. Uh, you know, it is you who is choosing Hamas. And every time we hear uh, mentions of 
you know, who represents Gaza. Uh, well, we know that that's uh, Hamas, who are the elected uh, leaders uh, of Gaza. How do you reconcile that fact, and, and how do you explain that fact based on what you know uh, about Gaza and, and the living conditions that people have been uh, uh, living under for so long? Well, there's no doubt that um, Ariel Sharon, the then Prime Minister, removed the Jewish settlements from Gaza in 2005, September, August, September, it was the late summer of 2005. It was called the disengagement. And mm. that happened, there's no doubt about that. But Israel then continued to control the land, sea, and air borders of Gaza. It established what's called in international law effective control, which is tantamount to occupation. Now, the Israelis say, well, we don't do that because there's the border across, you know, Rafa mm. in the south yeah, into Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. But as we saw just this week, Israel has complete control over the Rafa crossing. They bombed it. They closed it. So although the Israelis might turn around and say, well, we don't control the Rafa crossing, the Egyptians do, they could let them through. That isn't the case. Israel, as we saw this week, bombed the Rafa crossing and closed it. Israel has complete control over the Gaza. They even closed in, in control the population registry. So they have complete control over Gaza. And that was imposed pretty much as soon as the disengagement, as soon as the Jewish settlements were pulled out in 2005. And that's why I say that is one of the prime causes of the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The fact that there is this medieval blockade, I mean, not allowing in water to children, as I say, more than half of the Gaza Strip are children, is children. They're being denied water and food. I mean, you know, that is effective control, if ever I saw it. Israel has obligations. That blockade is a collective punishment. It's illegal under international. It's a war crime. And it, then, then it needs to stop. The blockade needs to be lifted. Because there's no doubt in my mind, as I've said, that if properly managed, there is absolutely no doubt that Gaza could thrive. But we need this inhuman blockade to be lifted. And, you know, it needs states people on both sides, frankly, with some sense of vision. You know, the Palestinians and the Israelis, that conflict needs a Mandela figure, somebody mm -hmm. with a vision of peace and the moral and the political and the, you know, the, the courage to be able to see that vision through at the moment, partly because the events of the last 10 days, um, but partly because so many of the Palestinian leadership, people who might be able to do something, are locked up. And Israel has moved so far to the right, you've got you know cabinet ministers mm. making gen genocidal threats mm. on the record. You know, death to the Arabs. Mm. You know, and nobody condemns it. No one complains about it. You know, so yeah, we need to have some vision on both sides. And dehumanization of uh, you know these are human animals, which you know absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, words matter, and I think uh, you know you as a BBC reporter uh, and then as a spokesman, I think uh, you were perfectly placed to comment on that because I think words do matter, and despite the fact that you know in this instance. Uh, the object of uh, that description was uh, were Hamas terrorists, you know, who a big part of the world uh, uh, describes as terrorists. Uh, but even so, even you know, to to describe other people as human animals uh, progresses down that uh, uh, slippery slope of dehumanization, which therefore then allows well, it makes it much more. It does. I mean, there was yeah. once. Yeah, sorry, go on. It does. I mean, there was once this thing called the red lines policy, which the Israelis dreamt up and what they did is they converted the number of calories a human being needs each day into truckloads and they literally allowed in enough truckloads to allow just enough calories for Palestinians to have them hovering just above 
um, a humanitarian crisis. Yeah, I mean, um, forgive my ignorance, but this is this is obviously proven. In, this exists out there as, as, as evidence, as fact, right? I mean, forgive oh, yeah, my I mean, ignorance. Just Google it. I mean, yeah, okay. you know, yeah. I mean, thank God. I mean, the policy when it was exposed, um, you know, got cut short in its tracks. But I mean, this is, you know, this is horrific. You know, mm. human history of the 20th century, you know, has seen that kind of thing happen, and it's absolutely horrific. But I mean, this is the dehumanization. You know, when you get Israeli cabinet ministers saying Gaza needs to be put on a diet, we need to mow the lawn every few years. Mm, when mm, you've got yeah. tweets which I presume are authentic from Itamar Ben Gavir, um, you know, saying, um, you know, the only thing I'm going to allow into Gaza is tons of explosives every day and no humanitarian aid. I mean, how much more dehumanizing can you get when you see pictures of the children and the babies mm. um, in Al Shiva hospital and, you know, this hospital? Um, that was bombed overnight. Al-Ahi, I mean, it's um, it's dehumanizing, as you say. And of course, you know, the violence that was perpetrated against um, Israeli civilians um, in the south of the country, that struck me as, you know, very, very dehumanizing when you've got, mm. you know, babies having their throats slit and mm. people being executed in front of their families. I mean, it's just appalling. But, you know, violence begets violence, make no mistake about it. And as I say, we need to look at the underlying causes. We need to rehumanize the conflict and we need to look and address the underlying causes. Yeah, yes, yeah, spot on. Uh, but just, just a couple more things uh, to pick up on. Firstly, how has this blockade for 16 years or so now that's been going, how has that been allowed by the world? I mean, I know the kind of, you know, the Palestinian plight pops in and out of our news, news cycle every so often. But I mean, this is 16 years of gross abuses of, of, of human rights and, and indignation mm -hmm. at you know a level rarely seen, uh, you know, over the past hundred years or so. Uh, how, how is that possible? I mean, I find it as puzzling as you do. I mean, for a policy that is so medieval and so inhumane, and which is a clear violation mm. of international humanitarian law. It's a violation of the Geneva Conventions, the Fourth Geneva Convention on the Treatment of Civilians in Times of War. Um, I mean, there's a lot of politics here. Um, Israel has always managed to win the narrative. Israeli spin doctors are out there, just like they've been this week, peddling this narrative that, you know, there are terrorists out there who are out to... Um, you know, get get Israelis, and there's a narrative also of Israel having the right to defend itself, which of course it does. Um, I mean, both of those are based also, on facts, yeah. though. I mean, both of those are based to the grounded in truth, right? I mean, that's a it's, that's that's undeniable. That part, that part, that much is undeniable. Yes, and then there are other narratives. Yeah. I mean, Israelis are very quick to say that this was the highest number of people killed in a single day since the Holocaust. So you know, that is terrifying yeah. and horrific. Um, and true. And, you know, that doesn't make it um, any easier yeah. because when people like me say it's a violation of international law, people turn around and say, well, you're a Holocaust denier or you're an anti-Semite or you're a racist. I mean, um, you know, because the Israeli spin machine has been so successful in winning the narrative, it makes it very hard for reasonable, balanced, objective human beings like myself who invoke international law to make the points that they do. They get shouted down. Um, and the fact is that Israel is the spoiled child of the international community, partly because America, this guardian parent, has always um, protected Israel, um, vetoing anything in the Security Council, which is critical of okay. Israel, and protecting the Israelis in other 
fora and the fact that you've got this huge power behind the Israelis and America pays for, you know, 20% plus of the UN's bills. So it makes it, you know, the Secretary General has been frankly rather feeble and hasn't, I mean, you know, why he didn't call for a ceasefire, you know, pretty much straight away. Um, I mean, people would have ignored him, of course, but I mean, just to get that out there, that there has to be some kind of narrative and discussion around a ceasefire, because it was clear that 2.3 million civilians um, were in severe danger. And guess what? A school was struck last night. I'm not passing judgment on who did it, but a school, there was a massive explosion. Sorry, um, the sorry not a school, yeah. a hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry, forgive me, a hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, a hospital was hit. Um, 500 people killed. Um, apparently the hospital pretty much demolished. Um, and again, you know, Israeli spin doctors are out. They're going to do their own investigation. Who knows what the truth is? Um, but a lot of lies, I remember in 2014, a lot of lies and a lot of disinformation were put out by the IDF and their spin doctors. They hit seven of our schools in 2014 and immediately the narrative was put out that there were militants there. Well, there were investigations, they weren't. We found rockets in our schools on three occasions, rocket parts, I should be more accurate in saying, and we informed the Israelis straight away. We got no recognition of that whatsoever. Instead, a plethora of lies were put out about how UNRWA was attempting to assist terrorists in attacking Israel. And I remember well, well one day I was on an American network TV program um, with Netanyahu himself. And in the middle of this live interview with me, um, the Israelis interrupted, you know, put, got the American broadcaster to put out um, pictures of which alleged to be Hamas rockets for being, you know, coming out of UNRWA schools. And it was completely fake, completely false. And in the end, the network had to deny it and had to issue a retraction. Um, and that was because there were all these extraordinary lies and misinformation being put out by the Israeli spin machine. I'm not saying that this was definitely either a, an idea of rocket or, <coughs> sorry, an idea of Artillery piece or rocket. We simply don't know. But, you know, there's a history here of the IDF very quickly putting out lies. The same is true of the Al Jazeera journalist who they killed. As soon as it happened, <coughs> the IDF put out a denial or whatever, and it clearly, you know, we, we know who killed her. It's a, uh, this is this is a particularly interesting area that I want to talk to you about because it, this contest for the truth is is so evident. I mean, it, it, taking the case of, 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 the, of the hospital that was hit overnight, you know, and I've just just before we came on, I've kind of gotten the latest update, and IDF has now uh, released alleged uh, signals intelligence of uh, a couple of Hamas uh, seniors discussing it and basically uh, acknowledging that it was uh, that it was the um, that there was a there was a, a partner group of theirs, um, uh, what is a Palestinian um, uh, uh, Islamic Jihad that apparently had launched that rocket. Uh, they misfired and it landed. Then I've seen some uh, uh, kind of open source intelligence groups who study the impact area, and it, you know, there's no crater, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's now even been questions uh, about the number of casualties potentially. In other words, the world the world's been awash with disinformation. Um, you know that 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 there's been an attack uh, alleged by uh, the Palestinian authorities. In other words, uh, Hamas that it was an IDF uh, missile. Uh, 500 killed. All of that has now been put into question, despite the fact that now 24 hours of the news cycle has been spun up uh, over it. How do we how do we even get to the point where we can evaluate what's really happened, especially when you've got two competing 
sides, i.e. Hamas on one side and IDF on the other, obviously both pushing their narrative. How does the rest of the world, i.e. all of us, me, observers, how do we sift through what's happening? How do we, you know, how do we figure out what's actually right or wrong when everything can be doctored, when everything can be uh, post-produced, so to say? I mean, it may well be that we will never know the truth behind this yeah. behind this attack. I mean, in an age of artificial intelligence, production of images and voices and goodness knows what else, it may simply be impossible to tell. And in an atmosphere that, where there is so much mistrust, it may be that we'll never get to the truth. But I think that good journalists need to carry on asking the tough questions. We need to carry on demanding that those in power give us the truth, that there is transparency, that there is accountability. And we simply have to press on in that direction. I see no other alternative. Um, I think that there are credible organisations that could investigate this. I think the UN could send in investigators. Um, I, I wouldn't trust an IDF investigation. I'm sorry, but the history is such that um, there's been too much spin doctoring, too much lies. I wouldn't necessarily trust um, a, a, an investigation from the other side either. I think there has to be an, an independent investigation into this, and then we can begin to work out what happened. But until we get that, we will never, ever know. And the fact that there is this track record of fabrication, particularly on the IDF side, but you know, also um, on the side of people in Gaza, it, it's it's it simply makes it impossible to say what is happening. Yeah, yeah, and it really. I mean, the answer question is: we may never know the truth. Yeah. That's the sad fact. Yeah, which is uh, which is why um, taking any kind of a side is so. It's so it's so difficult. Uh, it's it's firstly it's very difficult to stay neutral or unbiased because you know the moment you see one side of the picture <laughs> that's presented to you. Yeah. You have a tendency but to leave that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you can say one thing with mm. absolute certainty, and that is that international law and international mm. humanitarian law is absolute. Mm. And just because Hamas violated it by conducting yeah. these barbaric attacks in Israel does not mean that anybody, and I'm not saying it was the Israelis, has the right to violate international law. So when you see these disproportionate and what appear to be indiscriminate attacks, whole apartment blocks just being mm. felled with you know a missile or two um you have to ask yourself is this indiscriminate is this deep disproportionate what's the military advantage yeah. you know as far as i'm aware israel is not saying how many hamas militants or islamic jihad militants it's killed if these are pinpoint targeted attacks against militants that they know about and not against civilians why would they at least tell us how many people mm. have been killed who are islamic militants you know, yeah. one has to ask these questions. You know, if, if you really are hitting militants, then tell us who they are. Yeah. Because at the moment, it seems that you're killing civilians, women and children, non-combatants, disproportionately. Yeah, what I think the latest is well over a thousand children have been now killed in Gaza over the last yeah. 11 days. Yeah. Uh, and, and I yeah. think yeah, from the, I mean, I'm a child of Sarajevo, of, of Bosnia, uh, you know, where a thousand, more than a thousand children were killed. Uh, in a three and a half year siege, I mean th th those numbers are just just mind boggling. But we don't—they're just numbers, uh, you know. From from our desensitized, distant uh, perspective that looks at this crisis through our TV screens or through our uh, uh, you know smartphones, 
And I think that's part of the danger. That in itself dehumanizes because it's just a number, you know, to just think a thousand children. I mean, if somebody killed a thousand children in Australia, I mean, Mike, I, I, I don't even know how we would react. I mean, it would, we would be in, in, it would be an utter devastation. Uh, it wouldn't be an uproar. It would be a, a you know. That's a very good point. But I, I also think that the world has become very desensitized to the killings in Gaza. Mm. I mean, the killings in Israel Saturday before last were truly shocking. Mm. I mean, they were unprecedented. Mm. And the sheer personalized, vicious, bestial nature of the killings was, it was shocking. Mm. Um, but, you know, people in Gaza have been subjected to that kind of personalized violence for years. I mean, this is the fifth Israeli attack on Gaza, the fifth Gaza war. And in each of these, um, mothers have seen their children crushed, you know, still semi-alive, screaming as tons of rubble fall on them and crush their limbs. Mothers and parents in Gaza have seen their children screaming with, you know, 80, 90% burns because of these um, attacks, awful traumas, children being made disabled, terrible psychosocial problems. Yeah. You know, these, the people of Gaza are no stranger to these appalling, um, it seems depersonalized because they're caused by huge artillery yeah, pieces yeah, yeah. coming into Gaza Strip and hitting buildings. But if you are that parent underneath that building with your family trying to survive, believe you me, the violence is close up and personal. And that's what, this is the fifth attack on, on Gaza. And that's what the Palestinians in Gaza have been you know, subjected to. But because they're not always cameras, yeah. you know, filming and capturing this in quite the same way um, that, you know, we, we've seen so many horrific stories coming out of, of Israel. And those kibbutz Nakim who I've got absolute sympathy for, um, you know, I'm married to an Israeli. I've got real sensitivities for what's happening on that side. Um, but there are some, you know, and rightly so, some very articulate people telling their stories on the Israeli side. In fact, one of the most impressive interviews I saw was on a BBC interview, the Newsnight programme with Victoria Derbyshire and a mother whose child had been abducted and then she heard the child had been murdered. She said, I don't want the single death of anybody to be done in my yeah. son's name, her only son. And that was astonishingly yeah. moving and a very beautiful and impressive thing for someone on that side in that situation, given the recent history to say. Yeah. That's another interesting point. And something I, sp I spoke in, in my last episode with uh, Professor Rashid Halidi, who's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, um, but he's written a lot about the, the kind of Palestinian trauma. Uh, and one of the things that he's uh, sp spoke about is the, as he called it, you know, outstanding or excellent diplomacy, uh, writ large, uh, by uh, those in Israel. Uh, and one of the points he made is that uh, one of the advantages they've had, you know, for a better part of a century is that they speak the languages of the countries that are sponsoring them. They speak perfect English, perfect German, perfect French, American. Uh, you know, they speak with the right accent and they present in a manner that's far more familiar uh, to the Western audience uh, than perhaps what we're seeing from the Palestinian side, right? And, and this is something I've noticed not just in this war, but also in other wars, especially uh, in the Bosnian context, uh, where you know the media would project the Bosnian as the poor Bosnian, the poor Muslim, uh, you know, grandmothers uh, with their scarves, uh, you know, kind of this this victimized uh, notion of refugees just carrying their bare essentials. There's always somebody screaming, somebody crying, 
you know, and, and this is something, again, I, I keep seeing when Palestinians or the Palestinian voices represented in the Western media uh, is that is there is a there's this constant screaming and and there is almost even a dehumanization component in the images there uh, because it is pain yeah. and suffering but then you see you you get interviews from the Israeli side usually very emancipated very uh, well-spoken uh, most definitively educated they look like us they speak like us uh, I wonder how much mm. that plays into or how uh, how much that influences the Western, certainly the Western, maybe not the rest of the world, but the Western perspective uh, of, of of what's going on uh, in Palestine. Oh, I think it's a it's a really good point. I mean, I would say it's more the concept of the other as much as victimhood. Mm. It's Orientalism, you know, it's classic Orientalism. It's these are atavistic savages um, who are always screaming. Um, they don't speak our language. They don't look like us. Their skin's a different color. Um, you know, I think all of that plays into the demonization of the Palestinians. And I think certainly in Gaza, and I think it was made considerably worse by the nature of the attacks two Saturdays ago, mm. I think in Gaza, mm. there is this sense of this backward Islamic religious tribal society where, you know, women have no rights and, um, you know, the men are complete savages. And I think it's very easy because of the blockade. Um, you know, when I first went to Gaza, there was basically a rope over the road that you went out. You know, it was it was not actually that's what it was before I went. But I mean, you know, it, it was possible um, for Israelis to go in and out. Israeli reporters used to go to Gaza. They'd meet each other. They'd marry each other. You know, there was yeah. this real intermingling of communities a long time ago. But with you know part of the blockade, um, it's become more and more difficult for the two sides to meet each other to have lunch together, to eat together, to fall in love, you know, to have children together, to do all those sort of very human things. Yeah. And I think that, you know, slowly this horrendous separation of the two communities, the two societies, has led increasing to the consolidation of this concept of the other. Yeah. And yeah. in that context, it's very easy for, you know, politicians to turn the other side into savages and for Israeli cabinet ministers to talk about animals in Gaza. And, you know, I think that there is a long history of this demonization reinforced by the blockade, reinforced by this apartheid system. You know, in the West Bank, there's one set of roads for the settlers, one set of roads for the Palestinians, one legal system for the settlers, one legal system for the Palestinians, one water system, one, you know, and on, on it goes. There is this kind of apartheid separation in the West Bank and the fence, you know, the blockade in Gaza. And in that context, it's been so easy for irresponsible right-wing politicians to demonize the other, particularly the Palestinians. Yeah. So maybe you can describe Gaza for us. What 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 is life like inside Gaza, or at least uh, perhaps before this latest upsurge in violence, uh, based on your experience? Yeah, I mean, the most important, I mean, even before you get to Gaza, yeah you have to understand it's a conflict zone with a fence around it. So yeah. the Israelis have built a wall around it. It's unique in the annals of contemporary warfare in being a conflict zone with a fence around it. There's nowhere to flee. Yeah. So when the bombs start falling, the whole of Gaza um, is unsafe. Since 2007, there's been a blockade. So very few exports, very little economic activity. Um, today, the water system has been completely eroded. The water table salinated, sunken, um, 
very little fuel. Um, you know, when I first went to Gaza, there were orange groves in the north. It was quite a, a productive society. There was agricultural production, um, but there were also garment factories. I mean, a very industrious society. Palestinians are incredibly hardworking, if they're allowed to be. Um, they're very computer literate. They're smart. They're sassy. Um, you know, they're good at languages. Um, you know, as I say to people, Gaza could be the Singapore of the Middle East if yeah. it were allowed to be. Yeah. Um, but instead, um, the blockade has taken away any of the economic possibilities for most people in Gaza. There are no economic horizons. So as well as all the um, industrial um, degradation that we've seen, um, there has been a humanitarian crisis. But the main UN agency that's there to mitigate and deal with the humanitarian crisis, UNRWA, there's almost been a blockade against UNRWA, and they too have come under attack. You know, yeah. 13 um, UNRWA schools have been attacked, four UNRWA health centres have been attacked, 13 UNRWA workers so far have been killed, 13,000 UNRWA staff have fled down to the south. So, the, you know, the very organisation, the main organisation that's there to deal with this humanitarian crisis, that too has been subject to the blockade. And then there's the psychological aspect, the non-physical aspect. Children in Gaza over the age um, of, of 18 or so, this is the fifth brutal war that they are living through. And, you know, children get re-traumatised each time. Yeah. So after the, the second conflict, you'll kind of got all the memories and traumas of the first and added to that is the burden of the second and the third. It's the first, second and the third, the fourth. And now we've got, you know, children being re-traumatised for the fifth time so you know it's unimaginable um you know to look at what is going on in gaza it's unconscionable that as a matter of direct man-made political choices we have allowed a palestinian population one which could be so vibrant and so economically productive and we've you know we've denied them economic rights we've denied them political rights um and you know all that's happening is that they're being further brutalized and radicalized and um, and that's tragic because that is a direct result um, of choices which are being made and not just by the parties not just by the israelis and the palestinians but also by the international community the international community it seems has been comfortable with sitting by and allowing gaza to fester in the way that it has but things have to change now we have to start thinking about the underlying causes yeah. of the conflict and how they can be addressed i couldn't agree more with that point about radicalization. I mean, the upstream causes, I mean, nobody's born a war criminal. I mean, I've, I've said this time and time again on this podcast, and I've, I've, I've looked at various aspects of, of uh, you know, of crimes of in war, not necessarily just uh, formerly war crimes. Um, but I, I don't even know how we can expect youth who've been through five wars or, or five bombardments or, or five uh, uh, aggressions, you know, where they're really defending against uh, you know, homemade weapons more often than not. I, I don't know how we could expect youth of, of that nature, of that experience, to somehow side with those who they perceive and know to be the, 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 the oppressors, as opposed to those who are as misguided as they might be, representing their, their plight, their cause, somebody like Hamas, right? Who is, you know, using methods that are just horrendous and despicable and, and shouldn't be seen uh, in 2023. But I just can't see how we could expect it. I don't think yeah. It, yeah. I don't think you can expect it. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is it's not just, you know, people in, in Gaza seeing Hamas as trying to get the blockade lifted and, you know, deal with all those 
injustices, but also the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem is the third holiest shrine in Islam. And what you've seen is increasing um, settlement and settler activity um, in Jerusalem. The settlers are becoming increasingly emboldened. And what the Palestinians are seeing is themselves, Palestinians in um, in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, being barred um, and heavily um, restricted and controlled um, in relation to Al-Aqsa. And it's at those points of heightened yeah. tension over this very holy shrine that we see Hamas firing rockets. So Hamas, the signal it's sending is not only are we looking after your human rights, your human dignity, your economic rights, but also in terms of your religion, which is so much a part of your identity, we're also prepared to protect your religious, religious rights as best we can. And so, you know, you've got these Israeli policies which are making um, the, the, the population of Gaza really resentful and, and hateful. And you've got the Hamas policies, which many people in Gaza see as standing by their rights. And that combination, sadly, is becoming more and more lethal and more and more toxic. How widespread is the support for Hamas in Gaza, do you think? And what does that support even look well, like? Well, yeah. Yeah. the only scientific poll we've had was the election yeah. um, at the end of January 2006. And the Carter Center described it as the freest and fairest election ever held in the Middle East, which I assume they meant Israeli elections as well. Yeah. Um, and Hamas won it overwhelmingly. So the last time there was a poll in which people could express themselves, Hamas was overwhelmingly popular. And um, Fatah, the ruling party in the West Bank, as it were, um, have really dragged their feet on elections. And I suspect that's because they know that they would lose in the West Bank um, overwhelmingly um, to Hamas. So the scientific answer we don't have, um, we do have plenty of anecdotal evidence. And I think it's fair to say that with each attack on Gaza, each Gaza war, we've seen the popularity of Hamas grow and the um, standing of Fatah, um, the so-called more moderate party, um, declining. But there really is no way um, of telling. We saw pictures, for example, in the West Bank overnight of Palestinians attacking um, the PA, Fatah, the moderate um, security forces. Yeah. So there's a lot of anger and a lot of resentment um, against um, the moderate party, Fatah. Um, and there's evidence that, you know, far from turning on Hamas, the people of Gaza are saying, you know, you're protecting us and we're under attack. And I think that there's little doubt in terms of the anecdotal evidence that the standing of Hamas is uh, is rising. Hmm. And again, that's probably to be expected. I mean, if you're, you know, if your life's threatened, then uh, regardless of who the guy is that's defending you, uh, you know, even if they are not necessarily defending you, because, uh, you know, we do know that Hamas is happy to sacrifice uh, Palestinians. And of course, it's the civilians that are paying the price, uh, 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 you know, uh, for this for this full stop. Um, now, we, we're waiting for Israel to announce this ground invasion of Gaza. I know they're doing some incursions and some clearances, uh, certainly of the northern uh, part uh, of Gaza. Why haven't they gone in yet? Do you think they're going to go in? Do you think uh, Biden's visit, which uh, is, I think, arrived literally an hour ago, um, how do you think that will play into it? Uh, and w w how do you see it unfolding? I mean, a ground offensive is certainly something which all Israelis, including military commanders, are talking about. Um, but it's clear that Israel is in no hurry. You know, 200 Israeli Israelis were captured and, um, you know, they are very, very worried about them 
and they will do everything, I think, to make sure that they don't come into harm's way. I mean, in 2005, one Israeli, Israeli corporal, Gilad Shalit, was captured, and there were sort of nationwide marches the length and breadth of the country. He became an, an, an almost an international cause celeb, and that was just one yeah. Israeli soldier. So 200 Israelis, I think, you know, that there will, if what we saw with Gilad Shalit predominates, there will be a lot of caution. Um, I mean, it seems to me that we know that Hamas have got an extensive network of tunnels, yeah, yeah. and one imagines that, that Israel wants to bomb those and make sure that Hamas is not going to be popping up in tunnels, doing ambushes, and then disappearing again. Though I have no special knowledge of this, one imagines that hostages are being held in the tunnels too, so there are limitations um, to the extent that those can be bombed. So, you know, the ground invasion could be expensive. It could lead to further idea of um, soldiers being kidnapped and further complications. And I think Israeli military commanders are well aware of all of that. Um, but, you know, if you're going to kill Hamas, if you're going to destroy Hamas, I don't think you can do it from the air. I yeah. think you're gonna, and I don't think you can do it at all, by the way. Yeah. I think destroying a social movement is something which is impossible. It's a social movement with a, a very extreme military wing. Yeah. That, you know, it's a bit like saying we're going to destroy the Conservative Party by destroying every single Conservative Party office, killing every single Conservative Party politician. There would still be conservatism in Britain. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the big problem that, you know, Hamas is in people's minds um, as well as a reality, an infrastructural reality on the ground. And I think it's very hard. Um, some people go further and saying that Mr. Netanyahu was. Um, you know, deceiving himself and perhaps others if he thought that he could destroy Hamas. On the question of Biden, which you asked him, it was very embarrassing, I think, for the Americans that both the Egyptians um, and Mahmoud Abbas cancelled mm. this quadripartite meeting they were going to be having um, with him. And I, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, I think it was unfortunate. Um, one can see why, you know, there was going to be a lot of anger mm. that um, the president of a nation that seemed to be so supportive of Israel is meeting the Palestinian president, what good can come, about, come out of it from his perspective? Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, the Americans are a power that can exert some influence over Israel at a time when you know, Gaza is being pummeled. So you know, there are swings and roundabouts for the, from the Arab perspective. Um, whether Israel will see this as a restraining hand, I somewhat doubt it. I mean, I think that all the signals to American leaders have been Israel needs to do whatever it does. It needs to defend itself and to destroy Hamas. And you know, could they possibly abide by international law? Sure, but the overarching imperative is to destroy the Hamas threat. So you know, I I, I don't see um, that Biden's visit is going to make very much difference in terms of the prosecution of the war. Sadly, yeah. And again, the prosecution of the war so far has been by air. And as you rightly point out, you will not kill Hamas from the air, which again, that begs the question, what is the point of this bombardment? Uh, you know, and, and you mentioned proportionality. Uh, and this is something that's being discussed, again, you know, in in, in social and in the legacy media. Yeah, this idea of proportionality, that it's a, that it's a useless concept. Well, it, it shouldn't be because it's about military objectives. And one has to ask, what is the Israeli military objective uh, in destroying civilian infrastructure uh, far and wide, when arguably 
Hamas fighters are hiding under tunnels, you know, in, in some instances, you know, dozens of meters on the ground, which they yeah. remain untouched. I mean, some people, yeah, I mean, not only that, but if the border, the Rafa crossing with Egypt were to be opened and two million people kind of went fleeing out, yeah. you're then going to create, and assuming that UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency, could get there, establish yeah. reception centers, water, sanitation, food, shelter, housing, all that kind of stuff. What do you do? Create that another desperate yeah. Palestinian refugee population on the doorstep of Israel becoming increasingly desperate and brutalized? I mean, I don't see where that argument goes either, which is why I keep saying the only option in all of this is for politicians on both sides to have the vision and to talk about and to address and to resolve the underlying issues that blockade the occupation and the dispossession of the Palestinians. Yeah. If we can quickly turn to the West Bank now, because I think we're seeing more and more violence uh, across the West Bank as well, where Hamas is not in power, uh, but you're saying that there's a, a, a perhaps a more radical movement uh, attacking uh, some of the more moderate voices. What do you also make of the 500 or so arrests that have been made uh, of Palestinians across the West Bank? Uh, and you know what? who are these people? Why are they being arrested? Uh, and again, that's, that's, of course, increasing the fear of uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true to say that the West Bank is being further radicalised because, you know, these aren't two separate communities. That's right, yeah. There are people yeah. with cousins yeah. and brothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents in both Gaza yeah. and the West Bank. There are family ties. So, you know, when you attack Gaza, you're attacking families in the West Bank yeah. also, and that really shouldn't be um, yeah. forgotten. Yeah. yeah, and the West Bank is not a homogenous territory, so there are parts of the West Bank which Israel controls and where Israeli military orders apply and where, um, as Francesca Albanese, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory said recently, you know, um, there is a system of control um, which is extraordinarily tight and that you only have to be accused of knowing a terrorist um, in the West Bank for the Israelis um, to be able to rescue. There are 5,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. And um, if they weren't radicalized before they got to prison, believe you me, they're being radicalized in prison. Um, so, you know, who are they? I mean, there were people who, you know, may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. They may indeed, you know, have extremist um, actions behind them. But there's plenty of evidence that a lot of the people being picked up are being picked up by laws, which, by the way, were created by the British mandate. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of these laws um, which are being used in the West Bank um, to arbitrarily detain people, those were used by the Brits during the mandate yeah, period. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a broad spectrum of people being picked up. And I think that what we're seeing with these arrests um, under these six-month detention orders um, is the increasing radicalization. It's become a cause of war. You know, the, one of the reasons why um, Hamas say they've kidnapped and you know, taken all these hostages is because they want to use them as pawns. They've used them in the past. You know, 1,100 were um, were released back to the Palestinians for the release of Gilad Shalit. Mm. And there's little doubt that that was part of the calculation of the people that took the hostages two Saturdays ago from southern Israel. Where to from here? What, what, what must the world do unless this becomes an even bigger tragedy? Well, first of all, there has to be a ceasefire. Who can and who can mend that? I mean, we've seen what's happened in the Security Council. I mean, we're arguing, uh, you know, yeah, no, because no, Russia's I mean, put it up. And, I mean, yeah. the Americans. I mean, generally after Gaza wars, there's a 
so-called grace period where the Americans say to the Israelis, okay, you've got a you know, week or two or whatever it is to go and you know take your revenge and do whatever you know you is say that what this is? to do. Is, this, is that what the delay is I right mean, now? I mean, certainly if you look at what Israeli... Yeah, if you look at what Israeli cabinet ministers are saying um, about, you know, I won't let in any humanitarian aid, but I will let in thousands yeah. of tons of explosives. I mean, it does feel like yeah. an eye for an eye kind of um and just the rhetoric, war, rhetoric you know, of vengeance and revenge is is is, is ever present in 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 the kind of indeed, but i don't think all israelis i mean mercifully not all israelis feel like yeah. it. as i said i mean there's this amazing yeah. woman whose son was murdered who said not a single person should be murdered yeah. should be killed in my son's yeah. name yeah. so i don't think all israelis feel like that yeah. but certainly you can look at ben veer and schmotrish and see that they're you know coming out with this kind of rhetoric so yes i mean the americans have got to prevail upon the israelis first of all to have a, a ceasefire um We've been here before. I mean, the reconstruction of Gaza um, needs to take place rapidly. So that means huge amounts of donor aid. I mean, here we are rebuilding Gaza with Western taxpayers' money and other taxpayers' money, um, you know, yet again. But that has to be done. Um, the causes of the conflict, the blockade, there has to be a system whereby, you know, goods going in and out of Gaza can be properly checked. It did actually exist. It was the Karen Shalom crossing points, an industrial transshipment point with many, many lanes in which, you know, container trucks could go in and out. And, um, you know, the European Union set up this really um, good system of security, but it was clear that the Israelis didn't want that to function. I mean, you know, Israel has to get to the point where it wants to see yeah. Yeah. Um, a vibrant, economically thriving Gaza. And, you know, there needs to be a peace dividend. And, um, you know, that takes time. But it's not inconceivable that peace dividends should be there. And, you know, people being radicalized in Gaza um, and brutalized in Gaza need to be shown that there is a dignified and economically prosperous way out of the present nightmare. As I say, Gaza is incredibly entrepreneurial. You know, it ought to be the Singapore um, of the Middle East or the Mediterranean. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of evidence that once you, you know, lift the blockade a bit, Gaza recovers economically exponentially quickly. Mm. So, you know, all sorts of, with the right imagination, all sorts of peace efforts are possible. Look at the Good Friday Agreement in mm. Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, you need somebody. You know, perhaps it's the women. I mean, this extraordinary Israeli woman um, was talking the other night about mothers and grandmothers on all sides coming together um, to promote peace. Maybe that kind of thing is possible. I'm, I'm too... And too much of an optimist, even in these very darkest of times, yeah. to buy into narratives around pessimism. There always has to be another option to war and violence. So I think, you know, there's enough optimism, you know, bedrocked into those communities. Look at those people, those Israelis who chose to go and live near to Gaza. I know Israelis who go, you know, with their own cars and wait to transport Palestinians coming out of Gaza to Israeli hospitals, give them, you know, summer camps for um, children yeah. from Gaza with terminal diseases. You know, there are people who are prepared, people of de decent people of values on both sides, if only they would be allowed to do more of what they were already doing. Yeah, but as you rightly point out, that requires leadership. Uh, who in this current climate is capable of providing any kind of mediation, negotiations, of course, neither we cannot expect either of the two sides to 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 back down. I mean, Israelis certainly. I mean, they they they're in a blood rush. You know, perhaps understandable. Uh, you know, also given the far right government, we can certainly not expect Netanyahu and his uh, and co to step down uh, uh, at the in the face of you know the greatest atrocity committed against Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, equally, you know, Hamas is 
definitely not going to step down. If anything, he's going to step up. Uh, so who can broker any kind of... I mean, US is arguably, uh, you know, tainted in their, in any dealings, as much power as they hold. Uh, of course, Russia can't. Could China? I mean, who, who is it? Uh, who, who, who actually has enough power to be able to mediate? Qatar? Well, yeah, I mean, Maz, there are two sorts of, communi- of, of mediations we're talking about. There's humanitarian mediations about the immediate, mm-hmm. and that is about a ceasefire, yeah. um, evacuating non-combatants, humanitarian access to all who need it, that sort of stuff. And I think the only game in town there is the UN. Right. I think only someone like Martin Griffiths, yeah. who is the UN's emergency coordinator, yeah. and he's going into has the authority yeah, and going, has yeah. yeah has has the sort of weight behind that. I think the Middle East Quartet, um, US, EU, UN, Russia, um, I think discredited beyond belief now. Um, but I think the Martin Griffiths has a huge reputation. He comes from the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, yeah. which is all about humanitarian dialogue, um, and I think that Martin Griffiths is is well placed. Um, to to be able to do the humanitarian negotiations. Um, but there's a much longer-term problem, which is the wider conflict and how we deal um, with that. And it's very clear that, you know, somehow everyone's going to have to be involved. Um, the Iranians clearly want Hamas to be involved in any future dispensation, yeah. any negotiations. So, you know, somehow I think Iran will have to be involved. Yeah. Um, the Saudis, a massive, wealthy power um, in the Middle East. I can't can't imagine a situation in which they wouldn't. I mean, the, the Arab Peace Plan, um, the Gulf Corporation Council. I mean, somehow, you know, the Arab voice in all of this um, has to be heard. I think you know the Europeans will pay for this ultimately. So you know yeah. they're traditionally paid along with the Americans um, for the reconstruction of Gaza. So they are going to have a voice. The Americans will be hugely um, influential. I think the Security Council is going to be too divided. Um, China, of course, which brokered the deal recently between the Iranians and the Saudis, they will no doubt feel that there is some kind of role um, for them. Um, But I think that um, it's going to be something like the United Nations is where all 195 member states, you know, sit, all governments in the world sit. But at the moment, we don't have that kind of leadership from Antonio Guterres. Um, you know, he hasn't emerged from this very well at all. And we're going to have to see the world's top diplomat stepping up to the plate and making sure that this very careful jigsaw puzzle of the bigger powers chiving into place, these groups like, well, the Israelis, Hamas, Fatah, Hezbollah, you know, they've all got to be brought gently into alignment before you know, we can even begin to talk about these these underlying issues that need resolution. But someone with this big geopolitical jigsaw puzzle in their heads who's able to see how these pieces can intricately be put together, that's the kind of thing we need. Yeah. And sadly, that's right. Very rather absent. Yeah, very difficult and rather absent. Uh, yeah. l- last question, Chris. What are, you, what are you most worried about, given what's going on? I mean, just the immediate, I've got friends in Gaza, I've got family in um, Israel, and I lose sleep over children, innocent people, civilians um, being caught up again, um, people who have absolutely no responsibility um, for this conflict. Um, That's what I lose lose sleep over, and I fear that there are going to be an awful lot more civilian, civilian casualties before we even begin 
to get to the point where both humanitarian negotiations and wider politi- political dialogue is going to be possible. It's highly regrettable, both in the long term and in the short term. We are in a very, very dark place. But, you know, if you don't see light at the end of the tunnel, you might as well give up. And I refuse to do that. Full credit to you, Chris. Uh, I admire that. Uh, and on that note, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. I know uh, it's an extremely busy period for you. So uh, thanks for giving me so much of it. It's a real pleasure to be in conversation with you, Maz. And good luck and best wishes to all of your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Thank you, and until the next time.